Welcome to Weapon of Choice, a podcast where creatives across mediums give us insight into the weaponry of their art. Each episode, you'll be hearing an interview with an artist who uses their art as a weapon of choice for social change and disruption, visibility and justice, cultural critique and resistance, among other things that ignite social consciousness and community action. These artists will tell us about their journeys toward the battles they are fighting, how they design, sharpen, and develop their artistic weaponry to strike a blow against injustice in the world. Welcome back to another episode of Weapon of Choice Podcast. This is episode two of season three. Summer's kicked off, and we're going to really ramp up this uh, season three of Weapon of Choice. So we're back, and we just want to say hello. How you doing? Um, you know, it's, uh, almost July already, and, uh, we got, like, too many holidays to count in this country, but, uh, the next holiday in the beginning of July pretty much can go fuck itself, so, in that regard, let's always be thinking about freedom every corner we turn, think about our past, struggles for freedom think about our current struggles for freedom and liberation collective liberation look what's happening at the border look what's happening in palestine look what's happening in the sudan look what's happening in liberia <laughs> china all of it you know what i mean like you know, debating self-driving cars, does that matter? Does it? Look at each other. We got some beautiful souls. We got some beautiful eyes to look into to reach our beautiful souls. So let's try to connect up and make beautiful art and show love to the people around you, our people. And uh, I don't, you know, I'm not going to say much. We're going to get into this episode um i was in chicago on the west side of chicago hanging out with christiana ray cologne who's a playwright a poet an educator and so much more and you're gonna hear all of that had a good time down there it was beautiful hanging out with uh, a little bit with uh one of her sons ori and her mama, a little bit, had a good old time before I headed back to the airport for my time in Chicago. And uh, I'll be back in Chicago, actually. Uh, I'll be back in Chicago in July. And I will be recording another episode for Weapon of Choice, interviewing Hoda Katebi. Look out for that. Um, you know. So, we're going to get into it. I'm just going to do the usual. You know, you got to follow us on the social media. You know, on Instagram, you can find us at Weapon of Choice Podcast. On Facebook, you can find us at Weapon of Choice Podcast. On Twitter, it's at Weapon Choice Pod. Going to need you to follow all of those. Going to need you to share the shit. Whenever we release an episode on Facebook, share the shit out of it. Please click that share button. It's too easy. We're going to need you to follow us on Instagram. We're going to need you to, you know, if you listen to uh, the podcast on Apple Podcasts and iTunes, we're going to need you to go give us that five-star rating and review us. We need that. Show us that love. Please take a couple minutes to do that as it will help give us some more visibility. We do this little podcast completely. 
completely independently short of the dozen or so listeners that are contributing monthly to our Patreon. So we do have a Patreon where folks give $1 or more every month to help sustain us and help us grow. And we need more of that support. So you can go to patreon.com forward slash weapon of choice podcast to give a little something, something. You know what I mean? If I see you in line at Starbucks, you might get that side eye for more reasons than the fact that you could be spending that expensive ass cup of coffee per month on helping Weapon of Choice podcast grow. And we got some other podcasts launching later this summer, but we're not going to talk about that right now. But please keep showing us love. We really appreciate all of you tuning in. We'd be nothing without you. We love what we're doing and we ain't going to stop. But we need your support, continued support, and uh, appreciate everybody listening. Keep telling your friends and family. There's so many important conversations and all these interviews and things being talked about that we feel like folks need to hear that. And by folks, I mean, we know you're tuning in, but we know we need to tell more people about these conversations who, you know, listen to podcasts and really, you know, use this medium for good, you know. So keep tuning in. We appreciate that. And uh, we're going to get into Christiana Ray Colon out of Chicago talking about a lot of good things. I was blessed to have this conversation with her. She's a revolutionary mother. She's a revolutionary activist, artist, pleasurist. You know, Christiana is one of the co-founders, which is one of the co-founders of the Let Us Breathe Collective, She's also the creator of Black Sex Matters and um, the way the way she, you know, talks about a little bit of her process of writing plays and the way she's thinking about her community is so inspiring. You're going to hear all of that in this episode. So I'm not going to waste no more time. I'm going to shut the hell up and we're going to get into this. So please keep rocking with us and dig this interview. Yeah, I'm just gonna get these levels going. So you wanna grab it whenever you feel mm-hmm. comfortable. I'm sure you I'm sure you've um written grants in your lifetime. And so we're doing a special episode called the Grant Rant. Oh. Where it's just a bunch of artists going going in on the shitty grant process, especially if they're a person of color and especially if they're a woman of color. So that's yeah. gonna be a fun one. <laughs> you can think yeah. you've already you can already think of something. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's do a let's do a mic check. What's your name? His name? Do a mic check. What's your name, son? Say my name is Ori Tariq. My name is Ori Tariq Alim Cologne. Yeah, that's right. You like the microphone. <laughs> yeah, you ready to start beatboxing? Does he love music? He does. Mm. He loves music and he loves theater and poetry mm. and the outdoors. Hey. Yes, I am Christiana Ray Cologne. I'm a poet, playwright, one of the co founders of the Let Us Breathe Collective, and the inaugural Burrell Fellow in Playwriting at Columbia College, Chicago. Christiana, welcome to Weapon of Choice Podcast. We're so glad you're with us. I'm so glad to be talking to you. If you can pinpoint a time in your life, a specific time when, uh, when you realized you're not normal, 
Oh gosh. Um, when I realized I'm not normal, I, I don't know that I ever felt normal. Um, you know, my, so when I think about uh, what makes me not normal, it's definitely my relationship with words and writing and language. And that started um, pretty much as young as, uh, as I can remember. Um, I've been writing creatively since I could hold a pencil. So on days off school, um, you know, like Columbus Day, fuck Columbus, but on Columbus Day, um, you know, when most kids would get to like sleep in and wake up and watch cartoons, my mom would wake me up at like 7.30 in the morning on her way to work and be like, when I get home, I want five poems and three book reports on the dining room table. Um, so, you know, it's like stressful for a kindergartner, but hey, who uh, is this mom? <laughs> uh, she'll be here soon, actually, because she's been... Ch- traveling and has not seen her grandson yeah who is freaking out right now take your time um yeah let's see what's up you got something to say you got something to say you got spit up all over your face yeah he's about ready for a nap Mm -hmm. You about ready for a nap? You about ready for a nap? You about ready for a nap? Mm, oh yeah. Oh yeah, that's that eye grab right there. Yeah, what else? Ready to do a psycho. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got a sense of humor too. <laughs> what you wanna do? You can hang out while I while I do the podcast. You like him? He's alright. I'm alright. I'll take it. You've already gotten like three smiles. <laughs> Which, you know, it's like a golden ticket around here. Every time he smiles at me, I feel like I won the lottery. And when I uh, got pregnant, I like was like, okay, well, if I'm going to have a baby and be a mom, I want to do it Christiana style. Um, so I was like, oh, my baby shower will have to be Black Birth Matters. And I said it just jokingly at first. But as soon mm-hmm. as it came out of my mouth, I was like, oh. Yes, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Um, and so I kind of took the format of my Black Sex Matters event and redesigned it around birth work. And um, yeah, and and that was my sort of like community baby shower. Um, and then I had a, a natural birth. I had a team of... Uh, two wonderful doulas um, and we my mom transformed um, her basement into my birthing space so he was born at Peach's house Peach's mm-hmm. that's yeah. mama y'all yeah yeah. So she's a little too too jazzy to be grandma so she's <laughs> Peach's mm-hmm. it's her childhood nickname which she has revived for this phase of life oh really mm-hmm. 
Did she have a, a reason for the revival? Um, just because, you know, gra- grandma wasn't quite fitting for her youthful spirit. Uh-huh. So. So we're not going to roll with that. We're not going to roll with grandma. Rolling with peaches. Yeah. So, yeah, just the uh, the resonances across birth work and, and pleasure, <coughs> abolition, social justice, uh, visionary thinking. It's like... I want to be like Adrienne Marie Brown when I'm get myself together. <laughs> um, yeah, so one of the things I was like reflecting on as I was listening was her talking about the the mistakes, her states of self assurance and self consciousness uh, uh, in her thirties, and then like feeling fully present and. Um, you know, in the pleasure of her life in her 40s. And I'm like, if that's what I have to look forward to, then that's great. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I mean, and coming off, you know, this is the beginnings of season three and coming off Adrian's interview and seeing some of the things with Black Sex Matters and Black Birth Matters and, you know, this pleasure theme uh, and this revolutionary pleasure theme to open... And to continue in the beginnings of season three is uh, a nice, it's a, it's a nice, what do they call it, happy accidents or, you know, happen to be in Chicago where we are recording today with Christiana. And um, I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing uh, these conversations from, from your perspective and, you know, in terms of how your world has evolved over the course of your artistry and, and living and mothering. And all of that, so we're gonna get into all of that. So I appreciate this, and I got a lot of questions about all of that. The Black Sex Matters, Let Us Breathe, Black Birth Matters. <laughs> you know. We're gonna have fun. In inside of like the capitalist wound of hyper productivity and only feeling good about myself if I am accomplishing a million things at once and only being able to accomplish things under um, extreme panic deadline, everything is an emergency type of conditions. And Some I think, of your best work come out of last minute scenarios? Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's a problem. Um, and I think only recently, uh, and really because I think the kind of social justice work that uh, I've been involved in has um, has required me to pay attention to, to this as not something to celebrate because in every other mm-hmm. space in society, you know, that kind of hyper productivity, um, you know, harming yourself in order to have maximum output is celebrated. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and yeah. Uh, and so I've I've always been like a very high achiever in those traditional spaces and it has uh it's been really uh humbling and challenging to try to decenter those tendencies um and i think motherhood has been a space where i've found it absolutely necessary to just like slow down be present uh take care of my body Mm -hmm. you know like (laughs) <laughs> it, it it occurred to me 
and I don't know why it took almost three months for this thought to occur to me, but I was looking at him grow and he's growing so fast. And I was like, I have made every cell in your body. Like I grew you inside of me and he's 100% breastfed at this point. So mm-hmm. all of his growth right now is is coming from the nourishment of my body. And so how could I not take care of the vessel that is able to create and grow and nourish a whole other human being who is so magical? Mm. Um, and so, you know, it, it means that, like, I'm not responding to emails <laughs> um, or, like, checking emails or being on email um, in the way that I'm used to and would like. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also means that, like, I'm not able to sort of succumb to uh, an Adderall-induced mania to, like, crank out a play in... <laughs> You know, in 72 hours. Um, Why do I feel like you're not joking about that? Well, because I'm not. Um, I I have not written a full-length play in 72 hours, but my last play, um, I wrote the first... Yeah, what you want to say? Strong voice. Strong voice. Well, I mean, you you were young, and your mom was saying, "Write me a play, write me a poem, and write this and that, and read True. this book." Yeah. Um, that had to have been. You said it was, you could, as far as you recall, sometimes stressful. Yeah. You know, how old were you when that like really kicked in? Um, uh, like around four or five years old. Yeah, I had my first poem published when I was six because mm-hmm. she submitted one of those poems to uh, an anthology of children's poetry. Um, so, you know, that, it was all all pretty young. Mm. Uh, but even on my own, you know, she definitely nurtured and encouraged that mm-hmm. part of me. Um, but I, when people ask me, like, oh, when did you start writing plays? Like, one of my earliest memories is um, writing scripts for my teddy bears and like having them act them out um on the old old typewriter paper with like the alternating white and green lines Whoa. um and my mom would bring home from work and i would write out i would use the, the like the, the fold out yeah with the holes on yes. the sides to yes. rip off. Oh, wow. yes so that's like one of my earliest like visceral memories of of writing scripts um so that that concept of creating worlds mm-hmm. um creating words uh for other people to say and embody characters uh uh-huh. is something that has always uh been in me from a small small child and were you did you find yourself at those young ages already a writer in like your peer social spaces thinking about writing or or actually writing like did you see a difference in how you how your curiosity played out in in, in like your I peer think spaces? it made me bossy <laughs> um, because it wasn't just the writing. It was also the the creation of worlds. So how that played out in like preschool is that I would sort of dictate what the make believe was going to be. Ooh. Right. Like, Ooh. so this is the scenario, 
you know, you're you're the mommy, you're the daddy. Um, you're so like, I no, was, I got this. Yeah. <laughs> Just listen here. Um, and, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I've always kind of had um, a kind of, I don't want to use the word imposing, but that's the word that's coming up, imposing personality. Um, so I, I was able to sort of, energize galvanize organize um in that way from like preschool age mm. um so you know so that those are the ways that when you say not normal that i can like mm-hmm. uh sort of think of being different from my peers mm. Mm. and then coming to your weapon of choice and what battles you're fighting what is that uh well my weapon of choice uh is definitely playwriting um but even that sort of feels like um too narrow um of a scope to name because really it's about cultivating vision and cultivating visionaries so uh, i was a playwright before i identified as an activist or before i was uh in social justice spaces uh and i think uh, the the advent of the Black Lives Matter movement and me applying my energy in those spaces um, really gave a purpose to my work as a playwright. Uh, so, you know, I am always saying, like, I am here to uh, create an abolitionist canon of theater. Um, and I'm trying to write an abolitionist canon. Uh, and that's really about uh, provoking the imagination, provoking uh, a vision of uh, uh, the world that we want to see, the world that we want to live in, uh, because so many people are uh, complicit and complacent with the systems that we're living in, simply because that's all they know. And it, you know, it just takes someone to provoke or to ask the question, well, what if it didn't have to be like that um, for them to shift their analysis? Um, for example, like I have been um, on the ground in Ferguson and you know participating in these protests in ferguson and then leading these protests in chicago um for like four or five months before uh, a fellow activist put me on to the idea of abolition uh and it was like during an action um where the chant indict convicts and those killer cops to jail the whole damn system is guilty as hell And they're like, yeah, actually, we don't use that chant anymore. Um, And I was like, what? You know, but that, you know, the crowd gets hype. (laughs) It's a a real dope chant. They're like, yeah, but, you know, we're not really trying to send those killer cops to jail. Like, we want to abolish the jails and police. And it was so obvious, but it, it just took someone reflecting back to me. They're like, oh, the win is not Darren Wilson going to prison. The win is there being no more police and no more prisons and us innovating solutions uh, beyond uh, punishment. And, uh, and so I have since like taken that moment of realization into my creative work uh, and am trying to use uh, my institutional access in the American theater um, to to present that question to audiences and to to galvanize audiences and to to visions for a more liberated future. How are those nuanced conversations about abolition in these 
different forms going deeper than um, us just getting in someone who might be less educated or aware his face saying, what, you're not on this ab- abolition train? What's wrong with you, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I also um, am uh, the co-founder of the Let Us Breathe Collective. We have for the past, uh, I guess going on three years now, been developing the breathing room space uh, which is an arts healing and organizing hub on the south side so we got this space um, in the summer of 2016 we started rehab january 2017 and have uh, been programming um, since early 2018 uh, in the space and it's an abolitionist space uh, that was born out of this protest movement, that was born out of these disruptive direct actions, and then this shift away from staging these confrontations with power to building power in communities, and uh, having the space and having sort of a brick and mortar location um, that is gathering uh, activists and organizers and artists uh, and community members um, has really shifted the work uh, from, you know, being at all the protests, uh, shutting down traffic, to figuring out like what accountability looks like on the relationship scale. Um, it was just one of the ideas from uh, Adrian's emergent strategy that I've been thinking about a lot is the idea of fractals uh, and how our individual relationships can really mirror the larger scale of the world that we want to live in. Uh, and so, you know, restorative justice, transformative justice, accountability, peace circles, like these are the kinds of ideas and tools that are tossed out as uh, the alternative to mass incarceration, uh, prisons and policing. Um, But in practice, it's a lot more (laughs) nuanced, complex, uh, more difficult than that. Um, uh, You know, an idea that uh, I have stolen from my brother um, that I'm sure is not original, uh, but um, that, you know, accountability can not happen outside of relationship. Uh, You cannot be accountable or hold someone accountable if you're not in relationship with them. The extent of accountability that you can achieve is is really only as deep as the relationship goes. Uh, and so how are we thinking about our individual healing? How are we thinking about healing um, at the unit of the relationship? Uh, and how do we uh, create individual healing and healing within relationships um, at the smallest possible scale in a way that reflects the world that we want to live in? So, mm. um, so, so that's kind of um, the where the nuance uh, mm-hmm. comes in and where it gets complicated and messy um, because I think uh, that is that is for me uh, an evolution of analysis um, from you know these large scale spectacles um, so I, I've been reflecting a lot recently on Freedom Square uh, which was an, an action that we did in summer of 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been reflecting on it a lot because um, the play that I am supposed to be writing with this fellowship <laughs> um, is supposed to be inspired by Freedom Square. Um, so one of the plays in my abolitionist canon uh, is Florissant and Camfield. Um, which is inspired by our experiences on the ground in Ferguson. Florissant and Canfield is the intersection um, that Mike Brown was walking up 
uh, when he was pursued and murdered by Darren Wilson. Mm. Uh, and it's also the intersection where a group of protesters uh, who called themselves the Lost Voices staged a protest encampment. Um, and they camped out for 47 days before being forcibly removed by the Ferguson police. Uh, and it was our relationships with those protesters, with Lost Voices, um, that was really the genesis of the Let Us Breathe Collective. And so Florissant mm. and Canfield is uh, a dramatization of those events that was developed in collaboration with those protesters. Um, and my vision is that the next installment uh, in this series of abolitionist plays would be Holman and Fillmore, which would be um, a dramatization of uh, the events of uh, the summer of Freedom Square, mm. where the Let Us Breathe Collective uh, staged a protest encampment outside of Holman Square, which is a CPD facility, um, actually just a few blocks away from here. Mm-hmm. Um where um, thousands of black Chicagoans have been illegally detained and tortured. Uh, and so I um, I <laughs> have supposed to have been writing this play, um, but I'm, I'm really struggling with creating words around the idea right now because there's so much uh, healing that still has not happened from the actual events. Mm. Um, so Freedom Square was um, an abolitionist experiment. We claimed the vacant lot adjacent from Holman Square um, as a police-free zone. And we really sort of almost overnight decided that we were going to camp there indefinitely. Um, and I think when we made that decision, uh, I imagined that we would be removed within 24, 48, 72 hours. Um, I never imagined that we would make it through the whole summer um, without uh, overt police interference. Mm. Uh, and so it it grew from just like seven symbolic tents into a tent city with a kitchen and a library and a first aid tent uh, and a free store with clothes. Um, you know, really, really quickly it grew in scale. And then children from the neighborhood started coming out and camping with us. And so we had about 20 children that were living on the camp almost full time. And so we then almost overnight became uh, an impromptu uh, move. <laughs> s- s- well, yeah, <laughs> uh, summer camp, but definitely inspired by move. Uh, and so I've been meditating on this experience and really wanting to, with this play, creatively position it um, in the lineage of uh, marinage and uh, you know maroon spaces and ask the question, like, what does it look like to create a maroon space in plain sight? Uh, what does it look like to create a maroon space on the urban landscape? Um, and I'm having a hard time because uh, Freedom Square, for all of its messy beauty, uh, was was trying to do that thing mm-hmm. of uh, create an abolitionist police-free zone, um, employ all of these um, accountability concepts like peace circles, um, with folks that we were just meeting and just coming into relationship with. And so how deep that, rela- that, that work could be um, was only so much. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and so, you know, we were really kind of flying by the seat of our pants, really great intentions, a lot of uh, visionary energy. Um, but, you know, it, it was messy and it created uh, rifts within the, the movement community. It created a lot of personal rifts um, within the collective. People were very burnt out. Uh, and we have not yet begun to like debrief or unpack that so three years later mm. i'm trying to approach it creatively mm-hmm. um and realizing that there's so much relationship work to do uh and trying to both be accountable to my mm. deadlines and also um that real like struggle. thoughtful like thoughtfully do the relationship work that's necessary uh to even try to like creatively process uh what happened in an ethical and responsible way um so that was a long answer to and, your question you know. <laughs> right yeah like and you know and the newborn is constantly looking at me and just being so uh enrapturing um mm. wow and <clears throat> and um wow i just learned a lot from <laughs> i had no idea what freedom square was this is my first time in Chicago doing the podcast, um, and this is only my third time ever in Chicago. Actually, the first time I was ever in Chicago was the night of the immigration ban, in oh, 2017, snap. and we were just getting ramen and smoking a bowl and then hopping on the train back to the crib, and when we got on that train, we didn't go back to the crib. We went to the airport, and whew. Yeah, the, the, the big Terminal airport five. protest, oh, you yeah. were there. I just happened to be... Yeah. Yeah, that was live. The beauty was it was the organic leading of protests and chants was I've never seen it I don't know. I've never seen it that organic with that many um folks with Middle Eastern lineage mm. it being led so beautifully in that way mm-hmm. instantaneously. So that was beautiful. Um and then the solidarity across the board right yeah. because of that but you know it's webinar choices first time in chicago and so i have a and i have a feeling there are waves and waves of brilliant artist activist spaces here I mean, yeah um so so grateful we're starting with you but um and, and you know we're going to talk about more of that but what about the intersections of art and activism gives you tons of hope and excitement about your community's future oh um Man, Chicago is just such a fertile, fertile place uh, for that particular intersection (laughs) of arts and activism, Um, which, you know, I think uh, talking about the intersection of art and activism is kind of um, a trendy thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think most folks who are in it uh, know that art is inherently political um and that activism uh is inherently an act of creation uh and so even talking about them as two separate things that like meet at a point um is is a Mm. bit um Mm. fallacious because you Mm. know they are uh, so much one and the same and so Mm -hmm. um inextricably intertwined um, but, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, the Hoodwazi, which is uh, a live 
talk show hosted by uh, my homie Ricardo Gamboa um, that is uh, Black Optic Politics. Um, so really take, you know, it's a, it's a political show, but it's really trying to take it from the perspective of people on the street, people in the work. Um, uh, FYI for Youth Inquiry, um, which is a, a performance troupe um, house inside of ICA, the Illinois Caucus of Adolescent Health. They're making really exciting work. Um, free Street Theater has been around for 50 years, creating free work with uh, teenagers and youth, um, you know, all with social justice themes. Um, it's just a really um, exciting ecology of work in Chicago and I'm, I'm humbled to be a part of it. Uh, and so that there are so many people, um, younger than me, um, that are, (laughs) you know, smarter than me that I can learn from, uh, is, is what is exciting to me. Um, my brother, uh, who is kind of my, my partner, um, in, in justice, uh, you know, he and I are the co-founders of let us breathe. Um, He's seven years younger than me, and he's like my little big brother. Like, I'm kind of always learning from him, uh, and his analysis is really sharp. And so that, that to me, is, is what is invigorating right now, uh, is that, like, I can really take a step back and, like, listen to young people um, and follow uh, the organizing um, of, of up-and-coming artists and, and organizers. Yeah. You ever find yourself motivated? I remember I was probably like 29. And I don't know. I'm, I'm older than Trombone Shorty. Not that much older, but I was at a, I just found since I saw Trombone Shorty for the first time and he's younger than me and he's just obviously he's as magical as he is. I, I found myself being motivated quite often by, um, if not all the time, if not all the time by younger artists, you know, partly because of their amazing work that they're doing and then partially because I'm like, I got to get my shit together. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, I mean, do you ever experience that? You know, you do with your brother. So that's a constant. That's a, that's a beautiful thing. Do you ever experience, um, you know, just kind of when you need some motivation, does it like, or do other genres like outside of plays, outside of theater, really inspire you to go write, go back and then write plays? Like, there's a good song inspired you to go write theater. Oh yeah, yeah. You so know? music is always sort of my jumping off point <clears throat> um, with playwriting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but along the lines of like younger folks inspiring you and also being like, oh, I got to get my shit together. <laughs> um, I so so that is like a, a very tender place, right? Because yes. I need, I crave like fires being lit under my ass uh, to be better, to do better. Um, And then also like comparison is the thief of joy, right? Uh, And I am literally addicted to Instagram. Like Mm. addiction in the most, (laughs) in the most literal sense that like, I can't thank control you. it. I'll say thank you because you wouldn't have seen my message, perhaps. <laughs> true, but other true. Other than that, <laughs> true, true. Uh, and, you know, and I disabled my Instagram account for several months, and so I go on Instagram fasts. 
Um, and I went on an Instagram fast from, from like a week before um, I went into labor through maybe like six or seven weeks after my son was born because I didn't want to be all up in my phone and like not looking at him, um, you know, during those, those precious tender moments. Uh, so I had to delete the app from my phone because I'm addicted in the way that like, I'll go to like check the weather or text my mom and I'll look up and like 25 or 30 or 45 minutes have passed and I've just been scrolling and I'm like, wait, what was I, what was I going to do? Like, it's so automatic. I don't even think about it. And then I get sucked into this vortex. And, uh, and while I think I use Instagram um, to uplift or amplify different, um, you know, campaigns like Black Birth Matters, definitely, um, was built through Instagram, Black Sex Matters. Uh, you know, social media has been so huge mm-hmm. uh, in amplifying organizing work and and making connections with other people doing the work. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, oh, wow, so-and-so has another play out or like, oh, wow, so-and-so's in LA. Like, I, you know, I'm constantly like, oh, man, uh, I need to get my shit together in a way that I have to be very careful is not like making me feel bad about myself. Uh, it's very easy to go down a rabbit hole of like, I suck. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, like I need to go to the gym. I need to be eating vegan. <laughs> um, you know, like I need to be putting out new work. Um, and I'm probably due. I'm probably about due for an Instagram fast again. So what um, do you... What do you, what do you a learn from these Instagram fasts, and do you be, do you what is amplified or illuminated? What things that you love about yourself, um, and what other perhaps confidence blooms in those hiatuses, like where you really are achieving something with that break? Oh man, uh, you know, really, I don't know how like the synapses of young people are being formed and changed by how attached they are to the phones. Because I, I notice an instant degeneration in my (laughs) attention span, uh, focus and creativity when I'm on Instagram. And then like those things like heal and recover in these fasting moments. And so for young people who like don't know a world without like the swipe and the glow and the rectangle uh, and the constant feed, you know, feed and stream of content, like I don't, their brains have to be totally different and maybe not in a worse way. Like, I don't know, my partner's two year old, like she knows how to work a smartphone um, and is also addicted to the phone. Uh, and I'm sure that that can lend itself to like some kind of coding revolution where like the babies, you know, know how to wield these tools in ways that we couldn't imagine. Uh, but it's also scary to me. But do we want to sign up? Do I we want to sign them up for that? No, I don't. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know. Like I, I'm, I'm not tech phobic. Yeah. Um, but you know, at the same time, I just I notice the way it affects my attention span. Like when I was a kid, I used to be able to 
like tear through books at a really fast pace. Like I was a voracious reader. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just find that like, I have to really like exercise my concentration muscles now. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I blame Instagram, not just specifically Instagram, but social media and like having the internet in my pocket all the time. Uh, definitely I've, I've become addicted in a way that I know is like degenerative to my creativity. So when I'm in those fasts, I'm definitely You're more celebrating present. some things about yourself when you're in them and then try to carry some of them over. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just, you know, I think able to enjoy people and presence with people more, uh, and not like distracted by my phone. Cause again, sometimes I'm like on my phone and I don't even I have not intended to pick it up, right? It's just like yeah. a a tactile. And then even when we're not searching for any type of gratification or a lot of times consumption uh, euphoria from looking at the internet, whereas like we can see something where we, if we didn't get on at that moment, I wouldn't have seen that dope thing. <laughs> and so I'm glad I did. And yeah. then that little, that little like excuse is yeah, yeah, yeah. like subconsciously just traps us. Yeah. yeah. I you know, I know it's like the the reward centers in our brain are being stimulated by like the thing the thing that we wanted to find that like inspired or that made that connection. And so then you just be endlessly scrolling, like waiting for that next, you know, spurt of um, you know, whatever the, mm. the neurotransmitters are. Have you have you gotten quite upset with yourself with some of the addiction? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've had to delete the app from my phone, like during critical times of like, oh, I need to write this play, uh, because I will just lose so much time. I will just lose. Like if you add up the, the minutes, the blocks of minutes in a day, it's certainly hours that I just lose into senseless, mindless (laughs) scrolling. When that, uh, iPhone, weekly hourly you started kicking in did it like shock you oh my goodness i i can't look i also am in denial like (laughs) (laughs) like i I would just feel worse about myself if i actually um saw the numbers of of how much Mm. time Mm. um i've given away uh to you know um not completely useless right because um one of the leading up to my um you know birthing time fast uh i was really building this um connection with all these doulas across uh particularly black doulas and birth workers and instagram was so useful for that and like preparing myself for birthing it's like all of a sudden my timeline was full of these natural birthing videos um and so you know those types of ways are what keep me coming back because you know you have access to all of this information and and people um and are able to sort of curate um you know a, a feed along the lines of what you're interested in so like right now my instagram feed is a lot of birth work a lot of afrofuturism mm-hmm. um a lot of dope black women and, yeah. and queer folks um, yeah, yeah indigenous folks so you know that that's the content that i'm consuming so it's not like i'm consuming garbage content um but at the same time uh there's so much um inherent like comparison and self-criticism wrapped up in there that Mm. like you know 
healthier habits I'm always trying to to cultivate and that's a a weak spot mm. that, that I know needs healing. Mhm. Mhm. Definitely those hiatuses are like a nice foundation for that healing. Yeah. Yeah. And uh support. You do you have like accountability partners just when it comes to your phone pulling the pull out I the pull out don't but uh, well, I mean my partner definitely like calls to my attention when I'm uh-huh. just like staring at my phone <laughs> you know he's like I would want you to talk to me when we're in the car and not just be scrolling through your phone when we're in the car and I'm like okay <laughs> we just keep it real <laughs> uh, so you know he definitely calls my attention to it but I think that's a good idea is um, is enlisting more accountability partners around the use of my phone because it's a problem. Mm-hmm. That might, But that might be hard to do because you might, you know, folks might take it the wrong way. <laughs> like, I need you, you know, to help me out. But then that would mean that you care, like, more than just about me. You also care about this problem that our society has. And then in, in, in acknowledging that you care, you might have that problem, too. Yeah. So yeah, like folks how do, might not want to sign up for when it. all of yeah. your accountability partners, you know, are texting you. He's <laughs> 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 like, we only communicate via text. So uh-huh. how am I going to check on you? <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then you know, I just was thinking about the theater, air black playwrights, and you know the like I said, we encourage rants on this show. <laughs> Um, navigating the theater world as a black playwright. I mean, you know, I've only ever had a conversation with Lou and Sarah Bellamy about this and not Reggie yet. But, uh, you know, I've witnessed Reggie talk a lot of shit, you know, and he's great. But so, yeah, when you, you've been navigating this for a long time and maybe particularly in Chicago, but just like you said, the American theater genre, like what's, um, what have you had to learn about yourself in terms of patience? In terms of patience, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that when it comes to <laughs> navigating institutions, uh, my patience must be finite, <laughs> um, mm. which is to say that one of the tensions that I'm navigating is how the way that success as a playwright or conventional success as a playwright uh, looks is very individual. Um, And so me as a single author playwright, you know, having my agent submit plays to theaters, artistic directors selecting those plays and programming them in their seasons, and then those plays getting produced on larger and larger platforms. Like that's sort of Um, a conventional path for what success looks like as a playwright, uh, which means a lot of me as an individual dealing one-on-one with institutions. Um, And, and, and so that model of success, I think is uh, in tension with um, my community work, uh, which is all about like decentering, um, sort of the individual in that way um, and creating together. Uh, so, mm. so that's a thing that I'm always thinking about in how I approach the access that I get to institutions and then what I do with that access once mm-hmm. I get it. Um, and so, you know, it makes me kind of a difficult playwright to work with uh, insofar as 
I am adamantly like not producing plays just to like have another production on my resume. Like I'm really only interested in my plays being produced in contexts um, that are socially transformative. Uh, and so if a theater company uh, can't deliver that, then I can't really work with them. Or if I'm working with them, then I'm like constantly. Or if they can't give away like 40 free tickets. Right. So, you know, so that's a, a thing that um, <laughs> that I'm, I'm constantly having to navigate is like if my play is being produced in this context, like who has access to see it? Um, because who am I writing for and, and what kind of audiences am I trying to reach and how am I making theater more accessible for communities? Um, and, you know, I think that is even a fraught question because uh, it implies like a, a certain Western model of theater where these are the seats and the audience is looking at this thing on the stage that is a spectacle to be consumed mm-hmm. um, and really... Um, you know, a, a thing that I, my personal work has not evolved to yet, but that I'm very interested in is like, what is, what does my work look like outside of those confines? Like what is uh, site specific theater, um, you know, theater that is community devised and that is coming out of lived experiences um, that is outside of this like Western consumer model. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when, when it comes to institutions, like I actually um, finally responded to an email uh, on my train ride home uh, on my way here this afternoon um, to an artistic director that wants to produce one of my plays. And I sent her this list of bullet points of like, yeah, we should set up a video chat, but here are the things that I want to talk about. Uh, do you have the capacity to hire a black or a woman of color director? Do you have the capacity to cast a minimum of five women of color in this cast? Do you have the capacity to hire designers of color? Uh, do you have the capacity to program uh, support services for audience and cast members who might be survivors? Um, and those are just like the baseline questions of like, if you're approaching me to produce my work, Uh, I want to know do you have the capacity to do these things because if not um, then you should reapproach me when you do Uh, which means that you know I'm not necessarily going to be the easiest playwright to work with Um, and I want to be all up in the mix so I'm also like fly me out I'm trying to get flued out like and not (laughs) just because I like to travel I do like to travel especially on someone else's dime uh, but also because you know because it is important to me that my plays are being produced in a socially transformative context um i feel like i need to be present be hands-on with those processes um because i've learned from experience that you know uh folks with the best of intentions will say like yes yes we've invited xyz activist group you know we're giving them free tickets but you know someone has to actually be there to like make sure that that has actually happened and Mm -hmm. like oh your post-show facilitator didn't show up so i'm here and i can facilitate a post-show discussion uh because i think that is important that people have a space to process the play Uh, and so those kinds of details around how the play gets produced the context in which it's produced um are are things that um i have to sort of be very rigorous in my approach as a playwright uh when it comes to dealing with institutions yeah those li- those liaisons if you're like if it's just not if it's outside of chicago it's so important like i remember because kaneza 
Saul and Christopher Myers that were having their their play in Minneapolis and their you know someone at the institution in Minneapolis was you know reaching out to me about getting certain folks in community access to the show the Walker Art Center is white as can be it's being boycotted by a lot of people and but the play is so amazing that this this person inside the Walker working with Kanaza and Christopher sent multiple multiple emails to remind me that they had a bunch of tickets for these folks right instead of that one email which might happen if you don't go mm-hmm. and that was that was amazing that was amazing to like see that work where it wasn't necessarily required of that person you know mm-hmm. so that that makes perfect sense that like you know start to finish and um you know there's you could be seen as a difficult playwright but <laughs> It's just the word right is in play, right? Yeah. Play it right, (laughs) you know? And that's what you're doing. Um, Back to Black Sex Matters. Yeah. Um, You know, what are some of the ways you see us decolonizing our pleasure? Uh, Well, for me, that starts with uh, deconstructing shame. Um, I think shame is uh, a tool of the oppressor. Um, it sounds kind of corny, but, uh, what I mean by that is, uh, shame has been used to disconnect us from our bodies, uh, has been used to, um, really create. So <laughs> for me, black sex matters, um, is about integrating, our connection to ourselves, our sexuality, our sensuality, and our pleasure. Because when we are disintegrated from those things, uh, we are easier to exploit and control. Uh, And so the black body has historically uh, been a site of trauma and exploited labor uh, in the Americas. Um, And so Black Sex Matters is about uh, healing those traumas um, and creating a space of celebration to to reintegrate um, sex and pleasure. Uh, and I think how that is done is with shame. Uh, you know, we are constantly questioning whether or not we are supposed to be feeling a way. Uh, and I think that that kind of programming that starts very young uh, with the use of shame um, as this oppressive tool um, is is how you get folks like doubting their own intuition, doubting whether or not uh, they like what they like. Um, and it, it is with the deconstruction of shame that I think you're able to to really reconnect to your personal truth, reconnect to your intuition, trust yourself deeply, feel yourself deeply. Uh, and so that to me is like at the crux of um, why black sex matters. Mm. You know, it got me thinking about that. You know that Maxwell song, Shame? I don't. <laughs> Which album is that on? Um, so I, I like heard the song and it was fine because it's like it's newer stuff I, i'm like hey we'll, we'll see if i like this yeah but i went and saw him live which is bucket list right and sh- that song shame i really encourage you to listen to it actually yeah that song shame before he performed it he dedicated it to black women mm. and he dedicated it to i think specifically dark-skinned black women mm. um in a way that he explained it, I can't exactly, I don't, I would mess up the paraphrasing, but it wasn't to negate like all black women. And 
you know, again, how music does something for us, having, even though we do things that are outside of music. So when you're thinking of conversations between fictional characters and dialogue, um, are there any dialogues you're creating in your plays because you're not seeing them consistently or at all in the day-to-day? Oh, um, I would like to think that all of the dialogues <laughs> I am creating um, are dialogues that um, that need to be amplified. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm I'm very inspired by August Wilson, uh, even though I think he writes more naturalistically than I do. Um, one of the things about August Wilson's canon that I admire is that he takes the vernacular uh, of black people and um, elevates it in a way that shows the the poetry in our everyday speech um, mm. and sort of the the magic and the 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 mythological vastness um, of blackness and black people um, sort of everyday people uh, and you know so I'm definitely like trying to be like the hip hop August Wilson <laughs> of my generation um, and in that way create dialogues conversations that um, are being had, but that are not being seen uh, in mainstream media. Um, and so, you know, highlighting and amplifying uh, what is beautiful about um, sort of our, our messy, um, you know, poetic, uh, everyday vernacular, uh, and particularly conversations that are happening in social justice spaces, that are happening in um, in women's spaces. Uh, so those are the, the the kinds of dialogues that you will see in my plays. What kind of what kind of joy feeling do you get when you write that that just exchange that just hits between two characters? And you wrote it from you wrote both of those characters a conversation, and you look at it like that actually won't need any editing. Like, <laughs> what's that feeling like? <laughs> well. I don't know that I ever assume that a thing won't need any editing. But you um, have good feelings, right? I have good feelings, yeah. You know, definitely you can get uh, on a rip. I mean, the thing about my work as a playwright is I feel like when it is most successful uh, is when I'm just like the conduit for it. Yep. Um, you know, the, the conversations are coming through me uh, and I am getting out of the way and just like transcribing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is when I feel like, you know, things are really hidden. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about birth support as not only healing, but a major facet of building stronger communities? Yeah. So my own birthing journey really illuminated for me how birth work is foundational to Black Lives Mattering and uh, and justice. Um, it illuminated for me how uh, systemic racism permeates uh, birth work and uh, the medical industrial complex, how stereotypes about black women 
uh, not feeling pain in the same way that other women do uh, translates into really like racist care uh, in hospitals. And so uh, having a liberated and empowered birthing experience, creating that experience for myself um, and educating myself in order to do that um, became the foundation of, of Black Birth Matters and wanting to share that knowledge and share those resources uh, with other women um, along the lines of Black Sex Matters. Um, if we, like autonomy over our bodies, autonomy over our pleasure, autonomy over our production and reproduction um, is, is foundational to our personal and collective freedom. Um, and so, uh, really investing deeply in in care um which you know doula um as a a woman's helper or um advocate for a woman during birthing time um my doula team um really i think put at the forefront uh <laughs> and you know is is inspiring me as I mentioned earlier sort of healing um the wounds of like capitalist hyper productivity uh and mm-hmm. so the, the ways that like I need to honor my body um care for my body uh the ways that I can connect to the earth uh and herbalism to heal myself nourish myself uh, and and having um, a birth work community, a black birth work community uh, that is reclaiming that ancestral knowledge uh, and using it to empower uh, black women and women of color um, has been just a really uh, beautiful, eye-opening educational journey for me. Um, and, you know, because I am who I am, like I couldn't just like do that <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. by myself. Um, I kind of had to make it into a community thing. Um, and so, you know, in so doing, I have tried to to amplify that knowledge and spread mm-hmm. that knowledge and um, and really celebrate um, the joy and the pleasure um, of of birth mm-hmm. and um, and having an empowered birth. <laughs> What's your vision of the political education and centering of black birth work spreading, like really spreading? So I tried uh, to have an all black birthing team uh, or an all women of color birthing team. Like I really wanted um, black and brown midwives and doulas. And I could not find a black midwife that does home birth deliveries. Um, and then I learned that that is because um, there are, are very few of them nationwide. And you actually cannot be certified to do home birth deliveries as a midwife in Illinois. Um, it is illegal. <laughs> uh, and so... So that to me is uh, an example of the ways that we are um, systemically dispossessed from um, our cultural inheritance uh, and our ancestral knowledge um, that 
you know, like this nation is built on black midwifery, <laughs> um, you know, enslaved black women uh, birthing and nursing uh, the children, um, their enslaved children and the children um, of the people that were buying and selling them uh, is the, the reason, you know, that uh, America is able to be a superpower, right? Um, because of the exploitation of that knowledge, that expertise, and, and thusly that free labor. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that uh, midwifery uh, and uh, natural birthing practices are um, criminalized um, and definitely stigmatized in, um, in hospital settings. Uh, and that black women and women of color um, have such a hard time um, being able to do that work uh, without being criminalized, access that knowledge, get that training. Um, like that, that to me is like at the heart of uh, the political education that needs to be done. And so popularizing, um, you know, before I got pregnant, <laughs> um, like, none of this stuff was even on my radar. I wasn't even thinking about it. Mm. Uh, and so having the conversations to plan my own birth uh, and then realizing the scope of the systemic problem, um, you know, it, very similar to that moment um, of like going from, you know, being a, a disruptive protester um, yeah. to being an abolitionist. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the statistics on um, maternal mort mortality rates for black women definitely came across my social media feed, uh, but didn't really register to me um, until I was pregnant myself and trying to plan my own um, natural home birth experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then learning about the scale and the scope of how um, pervasive uh, the the systemic racism is affecting black mothers and uh, birthing people um, has really inspired me to uh, to partner with other birth workers and uh, amplify that knowledge and make it as accessible as possible for as many women as possible. Mm, I can't wait to put you in touch with Yehotu and who's in Minnesota right now, Jasmine, um, also a doula both sisters jasmine's been on the podcast mm -hmm. um can't wait and yeah thank you Dope. um you know with this you know system designed to erase the expertise right which you, which you in one example is what you just talked about they are designed to erase the knowledge the rituals the humor the genius of black people I mean, basically, white people just realized how boring they were from damn near the beginning, and therefore, slavery. <laughs> it's kind of, you know? Right. Um, so what what are some of the things that you do to reclaim our magic and your own black woman magic? Yeah, black sex matters is definitely one of those things. You know, I'm... <laughs> a lot of my work... Um, comes from me just creating the things that I need for myself and then not wanting that to be an individual endeavor and so making it a community endeavor. Um, but, you know, bringing joy and pleasure and celebration uh, and healing and political education all into the same space is definitely what the Let Us Breathe Collective 
um, has been growing into uh, since its time taking occupancy at Breathing Room. Uh, so we have just um, put on the calendar our next Black Magic Kickback, which is um, our like nightlife series um, that is all about uh, celebrating <laughs> Black Magic, um, creating you know a nightlife space um, that is both honoring um you know our our ancestors and like you know the turn up is lit i think i saw that video the black magic kickback video what i saw like a four minute video and i was like whoa (laughs) was it the black sex matters video i don't know but i was like whoa um there are a few videos so there's a a black magic kickback video there's a black sex matters video um there's there's media it looked amazing though (laughs) i mean um yeah so you know we're trying to create these spaces um Mm you know um and that that is again some of the the fertile ground that i think um, is the exciting territory. Um, you know, I know, uh, Adrian was, was touching a bit on that herself in her interview, uh, around those spaces being the places where she feels fully herself and fully alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, in, in that, um, respect, those are the spaces that we are striving to create. What, what is, you know, what is one individual ritual, of reclaiming your magic though that you really like to fold into ooh um in uh pregnancy uh taking baths um and you know i know it's another one of those things that is like um you know when we talk about self care uh it's one of those kind of like individual practices um that gets lifted up uh that you know, it can kind of be dismissed uh, mm. because we also want to focus on collective care. But mm-hmm. uh, I took a lot of baths as a small child. And then in my adolescence and, and adulthood um, have really only exclusively taken showers. And I'm kind of like in and out. It takes me a long time to comb out. My hair is always really tangled. And so I'm not really trying to spend a lot of time uh, in my bathing rituals and routines. Um, but in pregnancy, as I was, um, learning to slow down and take care of my body, I sort of rediscovered, um, the bath as, um, an act of healing and a ritual of healing, um, and started taking great pleasure in like curating healing baths for myself, Mm -hmm. uh, and then incorporating different herbs, uh, and creating these like herbal soaks, uh, and steams. Uh, for my body and uh yeah so the bath is one of those places it then becomes a place of of meditation um and prayer and reflection um Mm. and and really loving on and taking care of my body Mm. all right what's been your biggest test on your creative journey I feel like I'm in it right now. Hey. Uh, is rediscovering real time <laughs> uh, what my creative process looks like as a mother. Mm-hmm. Um, my <laughs> I used to say my muse is a diva um, because uh, my writing process in the past has looked like 
I need long, in uninterrupted stretches of time in order to sink into the generative space. Um, so a writing session that is eight or 12 or 16 hours long is like, you know, my jam. That's where I want to be, which, you know, in real life, we don't often get <laughs> those long stretches of uninterrupted time to just mm-hmm. be by ourselves and be in our thoughts. And mm. definitely now as the mother of a newborn, um, that is kind of non-existent. <laughs> um, so, you know, what does my creative process look like um, if I need to be in a generative space more quickly um, than, you know, these long sprawling writing sessions um, where I'm, you know, trying to pound out large volumes of text in a short amount of time. Uh, and so, mm-hmm. so I feel like that is the test right now is, mm-hmm. um, how, how do I adapt, uh, to this new life and how do I continue to, um, hone my craft and my gifts, um, in order to deliver what I am here to deliver to the world, um, while still being completely present and available to the magical human being that came out of my body. Yes. Yes. So where and when do you feel most alone in this world? Oh, gosh. Um, I think I feel most alone uh, in the midst of call-out culture. So... Here we go. Yeah. Um you know the the be becoming an activist coming into social justice spaces um really transformed my life and like opened up so many pathways for me um has put me in touch uh with so many folks who have transformed me um and also <laughs> i feel like has made me a more fearful person and a more fearful artist. And I think that has to do with uh, sort of the constant um, scrutiny that comes along with being a social justice warrior um, or in so many people's performance of being a social justice warrior um, is this external focus. and this hyper vigilance and hyper scrutiny mm-hmm. um, and call out culture that um, I feel like before I had less fear of failure, like I had no problem with just like trying something and just failing mm. big. If I was going to fail, it's like, well, you know, at least I, I did the thing um, and I learned something from it. And I feel like now, um, you know, I'm much more protective over what I'm creating and I feel like I'm a bit more obsessive um, and have not really been able to just like let go in mm. the same kind of way um, because I have like this horde <laughs> of, you know, of critics in my mind all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, I think it is good to have a community that you are accountable to that you have in your mind when you are creating uh, anything, whether that be a play or a program or an event or an action. Um, and so having 
um, having those folks in my mind, I think, especially when they're good folks, uh, people who you respect and who, who do good work, um, can be good as like a compass. Um, but you know, I also, I think I feel the most isolated, um, when I am, uh, trapped in, in the fear of, you know, the, the hyper scrutiny and the call out culture, um, is that trapped in like justice spaces? Is that trapped in like ways where you have this idea already formed in your mind that you maybe don't shoot forward and explore? I mean, I think, you know, I think I'm living it right now with, um, with how hard it is for with, me to yeah. start writing this this play yeah, yeah. is, you know, A, I know that there are people that are still mad at me about Freedom Square that, like, I need to <laughs> re-engage in relationship and, and have conversations with them and, and process those feelings uh, before I'm, like, putting out a play about it. Um, but also... Like, I don't want to be accused of anything um, by, you know, by virtue of, of making the play and putting out the play. Um, and and that's, you know, I don't want to be creating from that fearful place. Um, and so, you know, that is that one of the things that I am needing to, to dig into and heal and move through um, as I'm engaged. <clears throat> excuse me, as I'm engaged in this creative work. OK. Um, when and where do you feel most connected in this world? Oh, man. Um, Yeah. So, you know, the flip side is that, Mm -hmm. like, also in this work, right, um, there are these beautiful synergistic moments of getting it right um, when we are building in community, um, building in relationship, moving together um, synergistically. And it is so beautiful. And, you know, it happens in theater spaces, too. Um, why I'm a playwright, why I am addicted to the theater uh, mm-hmm. is the collaborative nature of it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, going from being a poet, you know, a spoken word artist, um, which can be this very individual thing of like, I sit alone in my room with my paper and then I get up on stage and it's me and the mic. Uh, and again, this like, you know, um, this separation between the audience and uh, the the artist as this spectacle that the audience is consuming. Um, Being a playwright, when I have my first play produced and there are all of these people that have to be involved in bringing the words uh, into an embodied state, right? Like a a director has to bring their craft to it. Uh, A cast of actors has to bring their cast to it, a sound designer, uh, a set designer, all of these people in these different media have to bring their skills and their and their craft to it, and that uh, deep collaboration of people bringing all of these different skills uh, to the creation of a world that started in my head but no mm-hmm. longer exists just in my head now mm-hmm. exists is the shared vision of all these people. Um, that kind of collaboration and that kind of community uh, is what um, really like made me addicted to mm-hmm. to theater yeah. um in a way that's different from film uh because it is um embodied and visceral and like yeah. p- human beings breathing and sweating More in the same room with you um and so um so so that those are the the kinds of things like in the creation um of productions of my plays where i'm working in an ensemble setting um, is when I feel most connected. 
um, and, and with people. Uh, and then similarly, like in my work with Let Us Breathe, um, some of the, the programming that we do when it is successful, like when it is hitting, um, it's so good, mm. uh, and so, um, healing and fulfilling, um, and, you know, so we have a, a monthly series called the Breathing Room Series that is um, a political education and performance open mic um, that is then wrapped in healing arts. So, you know, around a social justice theme, we'll invite people to offer teach-ins of four minutes or less alongside mm. artists of different media. media. So comedians, spoken word artists, rappers, singers, um, and then also a free meal, and then also uh, a healing art, so wow. Reiki or massage. Um, and, you know, producing in that capacity, um, definitely, like, there are so many people that are involved in pulling that off. Um, and then when folks come through and it, it is in action mm-hmm. um it feels really good wow uh, it feels really good to be in community in that way yes yes so how do you how do you balance cynicism and hope <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> i i laugh like that because i'm like do i <laughs> do i balance cynicism <laughs> and hope i don't know um I think I, I err on the side of hope. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's the, the way to uh, keep creating uh, and keep envisioning. Um, so, you know, I think always like a healthy dose of, uh, of reality and skepticism, but um, like I, I, try to be in the the child space the imaginative space uh which i think is inherently a hopeful space oh, cool what are you tired of hearing <laughs> what am i tired of hearing oh gosh uh i am tired of hearing the baby shark song <laughs> <laughs> uh because my two-year-old is obsessed with it and like literally will have it on repeat for hours um, and I still haven't heard it. You haven't heard? Oh, okay. Well, well we've got a nice little force field in my my home. No, it's it's good. Um, Is it good? It no, it's good that you oh, haven't okay, heard it because good. it's annoying. Um, but yeah, you know, it's <clears throat> it's baby shark do 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 do, mama shark do 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 do, and it just goes on and on. And so the two year old, she's like, I want do do, I want do do, um, which is like the refrain in the song. Yeah, and and she's you know. It's like she's in that age where she'll just repeat a question or repeat over and over and over and over and over again. Um, <laughs> so, yes, um, you, you said it's completely open ended. Yeah. That is the thing. That is the thing that I am <laughs> most tired of hearing right now. I do not want to hear that baby shark song no more. This is good. This is good. Um, when is this work most fun? Uh, the work is most fun when we're doing it together um Mm -hmm. you know again i know about myself that i can be sort of caught up on my own pace in this 
uh, hyperproductive state of emergency panic deadline mode of organizing, which, you know, I am learning is like really uh, antisocial <laughs> and not um, not conducive to to collective movement and collective healing. Uh, and yet, uh, when I'm in that mode, I'm able to accomplish a great deal. Mm-hmm. You know, I can do the work of 10 people. Um, but just because I can doesn't mean that like, that's what feels good. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So when, when we're doing it together, um, when I am moving, uh, with trust, uh, in my community and my comrades and the work that we are doing is truly collective um, and truly making space for all of our individual gifts for to shine um, is when it is the most fun, the most joyful, the most pleasurable. Mm. What do you want listeners to know? Uh, doctor, I want, doctor. <laughs> what do I want listeners to know? Um, I want listeners uh, to know how amazing motherhood has been for me Um, because it is so unexpected. uh, I don't know. Like when I tell people like I didn't expect it to be like this, the response I usually get is, you know, oh, it makes sense that that this is how you would be. Uh, a mother but again like I expected to just be more detached I guess um not as obsessed with the child not uh as um immersed in the pleasure of of mothering um and being with this new human mm-hmm. and um you know I think I always feared birthing and uh mothering for that reason um, as I expected it to uh, stop or slow down um, my my work or how I show up in the world, and I think it definitely has transformed it. But I think mm-hmm. it's transforming it. You know, it's it's a present and ongoing process, uh, transforming it in a really healing and holistic way mm-hmm. uh, that I am excited about. Um, and so, you know, I. Like, I wish I could sort of go back and tell younger Christiana, like, like, there's no need to be afraid (laughs) um, of birthing. There's no need to be afraid of being a mother. Uh, It's not going to um, be disruptive uh, to your love of travel. Like, the boy is three months old. He's already got a stamp in his passport. He has a passport, first of all. He's got a stamp in his passport. He's been on four trips already. The young, Um, young, the, the, the newborn infant passport pictures are the greatest yeah 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 i'll show it to you um and and so yeah you know that um i could have a child still be doing my work uh and and finding such pleasure um in integrating him into every aspect of my life and not uh finding it an imposition or a burden or anything like that. Um, I think uh, motherhood and parenthood, particularly for black women, particularly for young black women, um, is stigmatized in that way. Um, and I, I, am, I am finding such joy and such pleasure in it. 
and and that is what I would want to share. Cool. Yeah. All right. What art are you currently taking in that is recharging you and giving you life? So again, Adrian Marie Brown fangirling over here. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm teaching this Afrofuturist playwriting course at Columbia College. And uh, when I got the opportunity, you know, I got the opportunity when I was like in my second trimester and I had envisioned taking the first at least the first three months of just like not working at all and just being completely with the baby um and then I got offered this fellowship that I had applied for I knew that you know that vision wasn't going to be possible if I got the fellowship um but I got the fellowship which meant I gave birth on December 28th and I started teaching on January 23rd um and in this space of um pregnancy and birthing you know i definitely very future-minded uh and afro future-minded mm -hmm. and so um so i decided that i was going to use the opportunity to devise the course that i wish i could take uh, so i was going to build my syllabus around the things that i had not yet read that i wanted to read uh and so um adrian marie brown's emergent strategy mm -hmm. Um, Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower, um, Octavia's Brood, uh, which is co-edited by Adrian as well, um, and, uh, and, and others. So there's, um, a Susan Laurie Parks play on the syllabus, um, Regina Taylor play on the syllabus. Um, but yeah, creating, um, a, a syllabus that is full of, the things that would sort of stoke my creative fire uh, is what I aim to do. So I am uh, about halfway through reading Parable of the Sower for the second time in mm -hmm. 2019 <laughs> um, because I read all the things like before I uh, assigned them to my students and now I'm reading them again with my students. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so uh, honing my uh, Afrofuturist vision and aesthetic yeah. Uh, and consuming media that is uh, stoking that fire is, is where I am. Awesome. Do you have uh, any social media to plug away? Where do we <laughs> find you? Yeah. Um, Christiana Cologne on Facebook. At Christiana underscore AF on Instagram. Um, <laughs> AF stands for April Fool's. Uh, what we didn't talk about was me the and music. my brother's uh, uh -huh. hip hop project um, that I just recently went down memory lane with on April Fool's Day. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, a lot of folks think that the underscore AF stands for Christiana as, as fuck. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Well, uh, it's cool. Which is cool. <laughs> yeah. Which is cool. Because I am Christiana as Are fuck. You? Yes, I am. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Christiana underscore AF on Instagram. Uh, at Christiana Speaks on Twitter. I honestly don't use my Twitter uh, that much anymore. It's just too much social media right. to keep up with. Um, and ChristianaRayCologne.com exists. It doesn't have any content on it yet. It's just like a splash page, but you can keep your eye on ChristianaRayCologne.com. Bookmark it, y'all. Um, yeah, for, um, for more 
access to my plays. I'm also on um, the new play exchange, NPX, uh, where you can um, download some of my scripts. So Mm -hmm. uh, if you're interested in uh, finding copies of my plays, that's where you can find them. It's the new play exchange. All righty. And where can folks listen to the sister-brother duo of April Fools. Oh, goodness. Um, AprilFoolsChicago.BandCamp.com. And we've got like five videos on YouTube um, that are also linked on the Bandcamp. And along the lines of like, (laughs) uh, I used to be a more fearless artist. Like, I feel like April Fools (laughs) is kind of the embodiment of that. Um, Because even though... Like, I wasn't necessarily the rapper that I wanted to be. (laughs) Um, I was just putting the content out. Like, I was okay with growing in public and, like, failing in public and getting, you know, trying something out, it not being perfect. Um, And and that is... uh, an essence of myself that I am hoping to reconnect with, recapture, rediscover cannot wait <laughs> and thank you so much christiana for welcoming welcoming me in chicago on the west side and it's uh it's been a pleasure and an honor thank you so much yes thank you And there you have it, Christiana Ray Cologne. Thank you so much for talking to us. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in once again. This has been a special menu production. And uh, Andrew and I will be back with another episode, episode three, with Shami Ali. Stay tuned for that. So make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep spreading the word. We're on Spotify, SoundCloud, we're on everything. But just about everything. So keep tuning in. And um, of course, our original theme music is by none other than Renee Copeland. So always keep an eye out for Renee Copeland and her music and her dancing and her choreography and her film scores and her her Ananya Dance Theater scores coming soon, coming in September. And... Uh, Show love to all these artists that are uh, making strides for better hope, better peace, and uh, a brighter world. Um, also, we are going to, you heard in the interview, because you know I, I'm trusting that you listened to the whole interview, uh, Christiana mentioned, uh, you know, we didn't, get, we didn't really get to talking about it in the interview, but uh, the rap duo, the hip-hop duo, brother-sister-sibling duo, april fools um man i can't wait for another hopefully at least another april fools album from uh christiana and her brother because that shit is dope some of some of the elements of their their hip-hop is nostalgic i swear and it's fun and they still even in the fun ones are talking about something you just got to listen closely but I'm gonna play a fun one. It's summertime, and like this song kind of reminded me a little bit of back when Will Smith was doing his thing before he got into acting. People forget that Will Smith had some had some cuts, but they were having a good time, and this one's a good time too. But listen closely, like I said.
listen closely to the lyrics all the way through and trust me so we're gonna leave you with some april fools and this one's called sibling rivalry enjoy it and we'll see you and we'll hear you oh (laughs) make sure if you want to get in touch with us and I want to know what art you're listening to, too. What art is keeping you recharged? I, I just listened to the whole April Fool's album again. Oh, I just had a good old time just chilling at the crib. You know what I mean? So what art are you currently taking in that's giving you joy, hope, energy, inspiration? You can always chime in on any of our social media comments, DMs, whatever. But you can definitely email us at weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com. That's weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com. And uh, we'll holler at you, holler back. Again, this is uh, the song called Sibling Rivalry from April Fools. Dig it for sure. Adios, y'all. You'll be grounded if your GPA ain't high as me. Mom say clean the kitchen, scrub the toilet, and to iron these. Ain't you grown enough to do some laundry, man? I'm tired, G. A, a lot, lot of pride, pride no privacy. Our rhythmic sibling rivalry. Exists, I must admit, we make quite a tandem. A ferocious little genius and a charming kid that's handsome. Yeah, our fight is burning. April Fools, we working. We trying to blow ourselves up just like we're certain. In eternity, we'll earn at least 72 virgins. Virgins serving us. Ain't acting shy in the afterlife. Twerking offset my big words with a whole lot of cursing. Any person. I heard it, discern the purpose of my verses Smart nigga with streets since the establishment fears me My people and community advancing is what steers me Preaching unity and stanzas with this logic and my theory Then I add a motherfucker so you ignorant niggas hear me Christiana Ray Cologne, please don't forget the accident Check your prepositions and step up your syllabics This pugilistic foolishness is never less than magic So fasten on your thinking cap and power up your tablet Our prowess is so ratchet, and now we doing backflips On Halloween we power rangers doing back to back kicks we be Chuck E. Cheesin' with some tokens and some tickets We got Lucky G's, so now we flowin' and we fittin' Chromosomes be twistin' I got mama's hips and he's got his father's nose But we both got her ambition April had a vision, so our mission is to live it Each syllable's a thank you for the gift of our existence Mom says you'll be grounded if your GPA ain't high as me Mom said clean the kitchen, scrub the toilet, and to iron these Ain't you grown enough to do some laundry, man? I'm tired, G A lot, a lot of pride, no privacy, a rhythmic sibling rivalry Mom says you'll be grounded if your GPA ain't high as me Mom said clean the kitchen, scrub the toilet, and to iron these uh, Ain't you grown enough to do some laundry, man? I'm tired, G A, a lot, lot of pride, no privacy, a rhythmic sibling rivalry My mama told me manners, but I think I started losing them a product of the rather gruesome city that I'm cruising in The foiled hopes and soil nurtures Hatred of abusive men We are five more six-point stars Than praying in Jerusalem Well, you best not go to college Be behaving like a hooligan or lunatic Your tuition is too expensive To pretend like you ain't got no training From the place where April grew us in Your papers gladly proofing them Don't let those Susans do you And those hoochies down in Iowa Be trying, yeah, I get it, bro Cornfield calls mirages And these gingers look like cinephones You can't bring her to dinner, though She's got some silver in her nose Her scrabble game is average And you know how moms be tripping, Joe the 
office called me in They said I had to pay And if I don't come up with it Then they said I couldn't stay My face was so stale It was about to decay Didn't sweat, didn't sway Didn't fret, didn't fray The wire go through by the end of the day Now I'm going back to class Get the fuck up out my face It's funny, didn't really want to be here from the start But I can't leave now It would break these Becky's hearts They beg us to come to get diversity a spark But they're so comfortable when the black men depart Mom says you'll be grounded if your GPA ain't high as me Mom said clean the kitchen, scrub the toilet, and to iron these Ain't you grown enough to do some laundry, man, I'm tired, G A, a lot, lot of pride, no privacy, a rhythmic sibling rivalry Mom says you'll be grounded if your GPA ain't high as me Mom said clean the kitchen, scrub the toilet, and to iron these Ain't you grown enough to do some laundry, man, I'm tired, G A, a lot, lot of pride, no privacy, a rhythmic sibling rivalry From fight clubs to nightclubs to dorm rooms, bright light bulbs To study halls and buddy calls, what's 5K, what's 5 dust? Then drive buzz, deny what the officer is charging you with Tell campus security to get them cuffs up off of you The cautious of agnostic causes don't know what that cost you The flames lead to smoke, the smoke leads to coughing Get caught up trying to be conscious, can end up in the coffin Carcass laying on the table, his, his name, name is Robert Paulson Or his name is Trayvon Martin, your name makes you a target Please wear your fitted denim and your collar shirt when crossing State lines, you'll pay the fine for daytimes and 40s Done that, been there, a sister's friendly warning So many boxes of Jordans, it looks like I'm hoarding Don't know if it's the designer, I feel important when I score them these whores want me to court them Once they see I can't afford them But they don't get a portion of the fortune Not a dollar nor a quarter In need of a hero She's enchanted by this weirdo She likes when my hair gets curly And when I let my beard grow I always hate to hear no I told her let her fears go Then I lick from her neck To the bottom of her earlobe My gang switching I stay dipping I'm tired of all these blank missions Turn your neck the boy dang's missing Gotta earn respect it ain't get it. Try to pull your car Nigga stay fishing To see the game you need great vision We came with it from the same crib Same matriarch last name different Mom says you'll be grounded If your GPA ain't high as me Mom said clean the kitchen, scrub the toilet, and to iron these Ain't you grown enough to do some laundry, man? I'm tired, G A, a lot, lot of pride, no privacy, a rhythmic sibling rivalry, rivalry.